So welcome back again, listeners, to the Crash Podcast, which, if you haven't heard, is all about clinical radiology academics speaking honestly. My name is Tom Termas. I consult radiologist in Norwich and a former Royal College of Radiologists Röntgen Professor from 2020. Now, this episode looks like it's going to be a high-flying affair with plenty of action and no room for mavericks as we talk with radiologists that have all flown at least part or most of the way from radiology into the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, and no second guesses as to which movie release I've got all excited about. So without wasting any more time, let's scramble to meet our guests. First, it's a salute to Gregory Macris, who is Global Clinical Lead in Vascular Thrombosis and Thrombophilia at Bayer AG Research and Development in Pharmaceuticals and an Honorary Consultant Interventional Radiologist at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital in London. Hi, Greg. Hello. Hi, Tom. Thanks for the invitation. Pleasure to be with you today. It's great to have you with us. Next, it's a nod over the aviators to Jamie Mackay, who first joined us in episode three back in November 2020, and at that time was a senior clinical lecturer at the University of East Anglia, but is now Global Development Medical Director for Imaging at AstraZeneca, and still also an honorary consultant radiologist in Norwich. Hi again, Jamie. Hi, Tom. Good to be with you again. Yeah, thanks for coming back. It was a fantastic performance first time out. I'm looking for some uh, serious repeat business with the crash test. Okay, and finally, it's an exuberant high five to Neil Patel, Vice President, Clinical Science at Telex Pharmaceuticals and Consultant Radiologist in Oxford, where he is also Clinical Lead for PET-CT and Nuclear Medicine. Hi, Neil. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me here. Right. Well, that makes four of us. Who's up for a game of beach volleyball? Anyone? Okay, I think I'm pushing the top gun envelope a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's some pretty impressive roll call, everyone. Global lead, global director, and a VP. And we'll dig into what all that means in a moment and find out about how you have made that move into pharma and what you've taken with you from radiology and academic radiology, of course. But first of all, can I just come to you, Neil, and ask you to tell us a little bit about your background, what you do currently, and how you came to be where you are? So I'm at the moment um, a VP at Telix Pharmaceuticals, which is a radiopharmaceutical company. So I'm helping them with running a few of their assets, which are a mixture of therapies and um, imaging agents. And how did I get here? Long story, but um, essentially I was an academic in my previous life. I came back to Oxford as a consultant, hoping to be an academic, but uh, funding kind of dried up and didn't quite work out. And so I was just doing a normal clinical job and a um, one of our previous registrars had, had already moved to industry and was working at GSK and sent me a job description for a job at GSK, which I, I almost was going to dismiss. I looked at it and just read it out of interest and curiosity. And I saw that it pretty much summed me up in terms of skill set and kind of interests so I was like well let's let's have a look into it a bit more and kind of just investigated slightly and one thing led to another and eventually they kind of said why don't you apply for this job anyway and and I did and uh, I didn't really look back so um, I ended up at GSK for six years and I've just recently moved to Telix just a few weeks ago um, so at GSK, I was the imaging physician in their clinical imaging team. So we've caught you at a really interesting time as you're moving between different companies, which I suspect is something that might come up in terms of what the future holds for someone in your yeah. such position. Yeah. Okay, well, look, thanks very much for the introduction, but let's waste no time in doing the next bit, which we bring you right back down to ground with the crash test. I'm pleased to announce it's a triumphant flyby in return for the 
crash test grid. A simple explanation from ground control, that's yours truly. Questions numbered one to 16, mostly new, some old. Our guests get to choose five each, um, giving their best honest answer. So Neil, you're up. What have you got in your sights? Five. Uh, <laughs> what takes your breath away? Now, if you can't spot the link to the theme of this episode. Roller coasters. I don't know. <laughs> yep. Fair enough. Okay. Next one. Two. Do you have an inner voice? Now, I'm not like talking like the cartoon angel and devil on the shoulder. I'm thinking like some people, the research has shown, actually have a voice that speaks to them. Uh, like when they read, when they're doing things. Are you one of those people? I can't say I am. No, I don't think I have yeah. an inner voice. <laughs> no. Okay. That's fine. All right. Next one. Fifteen. What's your favourite island? Do you have a favourite island? Mm, I suppose it must be the one I'm sitting on. So the UK. Fantastic place. Uh, next one. Ten. Ah, yeah. Okay, here we go. How many times did you fail your driving test? This is when we ask everyone, every guest. Never. Never. Okay, fantastic. So that's a zero for Neil. I think that's your last one. Now, what's your last one? Sixteen. What's the most lost you've ever been? Uh, probably on a Duke of Edinburgh expedition somewhere in the middle of Snowdon without a map and well with a map but being on the wrong mountain. <laughs> okay that can get pretty dangerous and pretty hairy but I'm glad you made it back in one piece. Okay look Neil thanks ever so much for doing the crash test. Okay Greg let's come on to you why don't you tell us all about your history and how you came to be where you are today. Sure thanks Tom. So yeah I mean to start with um, as you can tell from the accent I'm not a true Londoner I'm, uh, I'm Greek. I studied medicine in Athens and then I decided you know who needs 36 uh, 365 days of sunshine let's go somewhere else so i moved to london to, to do yeah, my these fantastic PhD. british yeah, isles yeah <laughs> yeah so uh, i moved to this beautiful island as neil said and um to do my phd in vascular surgery at imperial college uh, and you know vascular surgery was all nice and good and uh, i did enjoy it um however i was um i was fascinated by the by, you know the interventional radiologists that we were interacting with during my my time in uh, Imperial College so I was like okay that looks that looks fun plus most of the interventional radiologists um, in that group looked a bit more um, you know how to put it more fun people to be around so I was like okay that looks like a good specialty so yeah that took me away from vascular surgery but I you know I wanted to stay um, in the endovascular sort of field I could see that that's probably going to be the future of vascular surgery anyway so that's why I decided to, you know, pursue a career in interventional rheology. And that took me to Cambridge where we met. That's um, right. Yes. I, yeah, I did um, an academic clinical fellowship there for, uh, for three years with a professor Gillard. Uh, that was, that was a good time. I really enjoyed my the life in, in Cambridge. And then, uh, you know, life took me to, to Oxford where uh, I met Neil, where I did my interventional radiology fellowship there for, for four years. And for the last uh, couple of years, I came back to London where I worked as a consultant in uh, Guy's St. Thomas Hospital, as an interventional radiology consultant. And for the last four months, uh, I've been director and global clinical lead in Bayer. So it has been quite a trip. Say so that you know, I've been very fortunate to be in all these places. I think I, you know, I learned a lot from, and I learned different things from all these places. I think it's uh, moving around. It can be hard. Uh, it's difficult. Uh, you know, moving to new places, making new friends, having to you know reestablish yourself in a way. But at the same time, it was, uh, you know, you're getting different things from all these places. And um, <clears throat> that, was a, that was a unique experience. So what took me to, what brought me to pharma? I mean, all my life I've been, you know, doing 
research. I've always been, um, you know, designing protocols, writing grant applications and all this. So when this opportunity presented itself uh, almost a year ago um, to do basically clinical development in a much larger scale in the vascular field, which is, you know, the area I'm mostly interested in, then I thought that, okay, that's, that's, that's a great opportunity. And, you know, I've always been fascinated by the commercial studies and the, the, the scale of them and the way they work and obviously the results they bring, because, you know, let's be realistic. I mean, they are the studies that change medicine most of the time. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm very fortunate to be able to do that and fulfill another dream of mine. And um, at the same time, continue doing one day a week um, as an IR, which is, um, you know, allows me to keep grounded to reality, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting. You talk about having moved and in, in our last episode, when we had our guests, Madhu, Jim and Amy back on, and they're all in, involved in IR in some way, we talked about how you can maintain IR skills. It would be very interesting to tap into that in the future discussion. And I should also point out, this is quite an incestuous episode because I all really do know you from really well from training and working. It's one of those ones where it's very interesting that you've all gone off into this particular field. And that's why I've asked you to come on to find out more about this. But I want to find out more about the inner working of your mind, Greg. So it's now your turn for the crash test. Okay, let's do that. So 13. 13. Unlucky for some, unlucky for you. I like 13. Okay, cool. I used to wear number 13 when I was playing basketball. No one wanted that number, so it was purely practical. You didn't have to argue with anybody. You could just take that number and nobody would just ask for it. That tells us a lot about your personality and always looking for the positives. <laughs> that, that's very good. Okay, well, then let's frame this for you. What's the stupidest thing you've ever done? Well, the stupidest thing? Okay, well, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Dubai and uh, for a conference. And, we, you know, we had a half a day off or something from the conference. I was like, okay, okay, what should I do? What should I do? And um, so, you know, we went to this, um, you know, water park in, in Dubai. And, uh, you know, they have this massive slide and everything and water slides. And, uh, yeah, it was basically, you know, it was basically me and some 15-year-old, 12-year-olds running around, going around the water slide. <laughs> yeah, okay, that uh, sounds so, like yeah, okay, probably a little bit stupid, but it was so much fun at the same time. So, yeah. so really recommend Good. it. <laughs> Good, thank you for sharing that. Okay, next one. Uh, that's gonna be number eight. Oh well that would be very lucky in other cultures and you'd have to fight for the number eight shirt but then what things have you crashed other than a car i used to like playing with drones so i have like a couple of drones <laughs> and uh the, so the first drone i got hopefully fortunately was a very cheap one and uh, i crashed it and lost it after playing with this for five minutes that was a great uh, investment of a hundred pounds i guess you can just imagine the scenario, like middle-class dad, whatever you do, please just don't fly it into the woods, okay? Because that cost £100. And there it went, straight away, gone. The wind took it, so it was, yeah. <laughs> Lesson learned. Next one, then. Number three. Okay, what anniversary or tradition or festival do you enjoy celebrating the most? I think it's Greek Easter. I like Greek Easter. It's uh, because, you know, it's usually time we go back to go back to Athens. Um, you know, it's a nice time of the year. It's not too cold. It's not too hot. It's just right. And, uh, you know, it's a nice time to spend with the family. Um, and we like, you know, doing barbecues on that day. So, you know, it's like, a, yep. you know, it's a good day. It's not the same as the sometimes English calendar. They, sometimes it coincides, but uh, sometimes like one week before, one week after. Yeah. So difficult to get leave then, I suppose, if it doesn't coincide or can you still manage? Uh, you know, it depends. depends. I mean, mm. usually it's okay. Usually, you know, 
I, I used to do the on call for the Catholic Easter, so yeah. <laughs> I could get okay. some taste off of it for our Easter. Okay, next one. Number one. What do you hate about holidays? I mean, you know, complete justice position. I mean, like leaving, traveling, illness, whatever. What do I hate about holidays? Yeah, hate, um, yeah, about them. I'm sure that's going to be probably the same for Neil and Jamie it's, and probably for you, Tom, as well, because you're a little bit of a workaholic as well yourself. Mm. It's, it's a bit difficult to switch off, especially the first week. I mean, it, you have this uh, fear of missing out and so you cannot help yourself, but, you know, check your emails and, mm. um, you know. So probably that's that's the, the worst thing. I'm trying to improve on that. Is I think it's, you know, it's important to have some time off. It's refreshing. It gives you... You know, slightly different perspective, and obviously yep. spending time with the family and friends is important. So, so yeah, that that's that's the only I guess thing that I don't like doing. This not that being able to fully switch off sometimes. Yeah, no, that is it's really hard to do that, and it's sort of hanging over you the whole time. So, what's your last number then? Eleven. What do you put on your toast on the morning? So, and apologies if you're gluten intolerant. I don't eat. I don't do breakfast. I just okay. have coffee. Just have okay, a, yeah. Skinny cappuccino, that's it. Yeah, good. Um, okay, and you also don't get away from telling us how many times you failed your driving test. How many times was that? <laughs> uh, just once. Just the once? That's human. I like these robots that don't... Well, I, I, I had less trouble with this than with the RCR exam. Let's put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Comparisons have been made. Thanks ever so much, Greg, for doing the crash test. Right, let's come over to Jamie. Hello again. And I'm really grateful for coming back to speak to us last time, especially, as I said, after that stellar performance on the crash test, Mankini and all. Um, you'll get your chance for that in a second. But why don't you just update us with what you have been up to in the last year and a half in terms of having moved from clinical academic radiology into the farm, farm industry? Thanks, Tom. So I think, yeah, last time I was on this podcast, it was at the stage where I'd just been appointed as a senior clinical lecturer in radiology in Norwich. So that was a 50-50 post, 50% clinical time, 50% academic time. To some extent, that was my dream job. Uh, you know, it's a tenured post, so you've got the job security, but but still get to spend a good amount of your time doing something academic. But actually, what happened shortly after that was I was sent an email by a guy I'd worked with during my PhD. So just to, to recap from last time, I did a PhD uh, at University of Cambridge. During my clinical training as an out-of-program research block, I wasn't in a formal academic clinical fellow post prior to that, so I just went out to normal radiology training. And that was part funded by GlaxoSmithKline. So I came across Neil, uh, as, as we all seem to have, uh, during, during my PhD as well. And yeah, so following that, went back into a clinical lecture post and then senior clinical lecture. But anyway, so someone I'd worked with during my PhD at GSK sent me an email saying, basically, what are you up to? And, and this person was now working for AstraZeneca in, in a more senior position. And I assumed what they were looking for was potentially some consultancy. So I'd, I'd continue to do a bit of consultancy with GSK following the end of my PhD. But actually, the following discussion, it turns out, you know, the, the message was we're doing quite a lot of imaging or planning to do quite a lot of imaging. We don't necessarily understand it that well. I seem to remember you knew something about that. Would you like to come and work for us? And so I 
took that and, and, and went away and thought about it, spoke to people, spoke to Neil, you know, people in a similar position, spoke to various mentors about the, the pros and cons of moving across. But all in all, I, I think it was just, I really enjoyed my time during my PhD working with drug development teams at GSK. And I thought, you know, this is too good an opportunity. Yes, to some extent, the timing is not ideal because I've only just started this senior clinical lecturer post. But actually, these opportunities don't come along very often and, and just had to sort of jump at it. So I joined AstraZeneca in February of last year. So I've been here just over a year now. Um, my role is within clinical development immunology. So across immunology indications, I'm responsible for the design and implementation of, of imaging strategy for our clinical development programs right from early phase through to late phase uh, and yeah very much enjoying it uh, I still do 10% of my time clinically so I do one day every two weeks as a clinical musculoskeletal radiologist Great. Thanks ever so much, Jamie. Of course, I've been able to sort of see a little bit about that from our proximity in Norwich. And you've been, you know, fantastic in coming to speak to us in Norwich about the kind of things you've been up to, and which I hope we're going to reveal some more of. But let's find out what your strategy is going to be for your second go at the crash test. Which number would you like? It's a bit, bit easier this time because the choice is limited. Uh, I'll go for it. Let's start with number 12. Okay. What is your favourite drug? So you can take that any way you wish. <laughs> Careful how, how I uh, answer that. I'm going to keep my answer quite vanilla and say my, my favourite drug is caffeine. I'm very, like, like yep. bread, not, not a breakfast person, very much rely on coffee to, to get my, me up and running in the morning. The provision of free coffee in, in industry is definitely one of the perks coming from an NHS environment. So. Uh, I think this is actually something suitable to spin out to ask everyone else. Greg, can I ask you, what is your favourite drug? Oh, coffee by far, easily. And yeah, you can find coffee everywhere in the office. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, Neil, what about yourself? Alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Alcohol. Right, well, you all went for something that you take yourselves rather than maybe something like a discovery or humanitarian or part of your portfolio. So well done for going down that line. Thought you might be a little bit more enlightened but okay good great great okay jamie number well, two would you would you, would you prefer yeah. to say propofol or something like that yeah 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 i thought maybe penicillin that's a bit, again i thought that's when when jamie's going to say vanilla well penicillin's been pretty decent <laughs> anyway i've given out quite a lot of gadolinium in my uh in my time uh sorry in my research career so maybe radiology wise that might be my favorite uh favorite job yeah um, better than the adrenaline for the contrast reactions anyway yeah, yeah okay next uh, one Go for number six, please. Okay, so we heard how Greg thinks about this one, but how old do you think you are? Not how old you actually are. It's a good question. I think having two young children has aged me a bit, so I don't <laughs> hear say I, I feel like I'm sort of pushing 40, although I'm still technically mid-30s. I would have gone for 19, but <laughs> I think I'm just lying to myself. Uh, okay, next one. Let's go for number four, please. Okay, here's... Um, Proper top gun alert. What would you make your call sign? In fact, you had something similar last time, I seem to remember. It was Dr. X, wasn't it? Or the X radiologist. Oh, it was, it was what, what would my uh, autobiography be? And the, the title was X rated. But with X rated, yeah. Okay, well, so we'll, we'll, we'll riff something along those lines. Okay, well, let's go for the next one then. Number nine. Have you ever had dance lessons? Yes, at school. So, at school in Scotland, you get taught how to do Kaylee dancing. 
and I didn't excel at many sports, but I actually was quite good at Kelly dancing. So I was often the one pulled out to demonstrate. And I think that's probably, probably remains the pinnacle of my sporting career, really. Yeah, I did a bit of a dabble in some ballroom dancing while I was at university uh, as well. So yeah, I have had a few dancing lessons. So for our listeners, I just have to affirm that Jamie definitely has the legs for dancing. So I completely believe him on that one. Okay, last one then, Jamie. I'm, I'm blushing now. Uh, uh, <laughs> lucky number seven, please. Okay, here's a wild card. And I'm glad this was the last one because I'd have to do this. Otherwise, you get to ask me a question. So what do you want to ask me? Well, you said you'd thought about it. So uh, what's the most embarrassing thing you've done? The, the question you asked Greg. Uh, okay yeah what's the stupidest thing i've ever done well, yeah what's the stupidest thing you've done it was breaking my hand a week before i was supposed to go on a, a dream rugby tour to south africa and i did it because i was showing off to a, a girl uh, and i was diving into and doing a reverse somersault and i hadn't even warmed up and uh she didn't even see so that probably ranks as the stupidest thing i've ever done okay look jamie thank you so much for doing the crash test Greg, let me ask you first, was it hard to make the decision to give up some or perhaps, you know, most of your clinical time when you were moving into this different career? And how did you come to that decision? Yeah, I mean, it has been, it was a big decision. I had the same question from, from my new colleagues in the industry. I was like, okay, what do you, why are you leaving? Because, you know, I was in a good hospital, uh, substantive, substantive post. Um, I was very happy with my colleagues. Um, so there wasn't anything that, you know, pushed me to this. It was more of, you know, curiosity and the, the need to do something and to develop into a new field. Because, you know, I, I think that after spending, you know, 20 years in clinical medicine and, um, you know, the last, you know, 10 in radiology, um, I, I sort of felt like, okay, uh, how much more there is here for me to learn now? I mean, and obviously there's a lot to learn, I guess. It's just that, you know, after a while you feel like that you're reaching a plateau and, um, you know, the, the change from from that moment onwards is very, you know, incremental, it's very slow in a way. And I guess, you know, for some people that's, that's good because, you know, routine and it's, it's a good thing and, um, you know, makes life a little bit more easy. But, um, you know, I felt like, okay, I'm, I'm also 39 now. So I felt like, okay, if I don't try this now, probably I will, I will never, I will never do that. And as Jamie said, I mean, sometimes these opportunities come and um, they, they don't come very often because you need to find the right team in the right field, um, in the right company. Uh, and, and all these, you know, factors, they don't align very often they don't align very well very often so yeah you know i, yeah. I, was, I was like that game i mean in theory i would like in theory probably i would have liked to have spent another like maybe a couple of years as a consultant but um, to be honest I, the transition didn't feel that difficult because uh, as i was saying earlier doing research was always something that i really enjoyed it's something that i was always very very interested in and um, basically what i do now is designing trials like really big trials for uh, cardiovascular drugs so that's you know that's that's great for me this is what one thing that I always wanted to do um so actually the transition didn't feel that weird and it's my fourth month in the in, in the in the in the field so I mean in comparison to the other guys in the panel I'm I'm, I'm very new here uh, but the transition have, has felt very very, very natural it's um, that I didn't feel like I'm doing something 
something weird or okay maybe it's because I'm, I'm, I'm i've moved into clinical development maybe if i had moved to medical affairs or regulatory things would have been different uh, but because i'm doing something that you know in a way i was always doing it it, it felt very natural and obviously you know it's the the culture of the company also helps because it's a very friendly accommodating culture yeah well neil can i ask you the same question because i think you do a bit more clinical work than jamie and greg so so what's that balance for you at the moment i do one day a week clinical and four days for the company um previously for gsk i used to do three days clinical and two days for the company so previously when i was starting off i didn't know anyone else who had gone into industry it was a totally unknown thing i didn't have anyone to talk to about it so there was no kind of advice to be given so i was quite um what's the word risk averse uh, i it was it was quite a big unknown and it wasn't yeah. quite like the normal academic path so i was trying to kind of hedge my bets we can touch on about ways back and that balance and the risks that one takes in taking such a substantial career change in a bit that that's an interesting point to hit because it's such an unknown i didn't know what the risks were exactly at that point i didn't want to just jump in you know full feet and also to be honest i really enjoy my clinical work and i i, I think it's something that i've been trained to do and i feel i'm I, i'm good at it so i didn't want to i didn't want to lose that completely um and so then really the negotiation was what the split was initially um, between GSK and, and uh, my department. And, and that's where it became a bit of an issue because the department didn't want to let me go so much. Um, yeah. So I, could, I, I would have rather done it the other way, so say three days of GSK and two days of, of clinical work, but I, I, I couldn't negotiate that. So it ended up being what it was and, and it stayed and, and, you know, there's a workforce crisis and we didn't have enough consultants to cover all the work. Um, and so I, I, looking at opportunities in the future when I could expand my time just never arose. Um, and so I, 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 I'd been, I, I stayed like that for the last six years. And then starting this new new job, there's no way I could, I could continue in the same vein with that such a you know, small amount because it's much more responsibility. So, so I had to renegotiate, but this time it was a bit easier. Being yeah, of course, you've had that experience. So you very much know the lay of the land, the landscape and what kind of needs you have, presumably, from your current role with Telex, yeah? Yeah, having said that, it's a totally new type of role. Previously, mm. I, was, I was really doing imaging within a clinical imaging group, um, whereas now I'm doing more drug development well, it is drug development. I'm not doing um, less of the imaging. So it's, uh, again, it's a, it's a bit of a new field for me. So Jamie, can I ask you the same question that you said that you keep 10% of your time for, for clinical? And, and I suppose everyone had made the decision to some extent to not do full-time clinical, but how did you sort of made that balance between the clinical and your industry work? And how do you maintain that? Yeah, that's, it's, I think it's a, an important consideration for sure. So I actually, I started off doing one day a week clinical, so 20% of my time, similarly to what Neil said, because I really, you know, I wasn't sure how things would go. I'd done a bit of work with industry during my PhD, but it's, it's a bit different to, to sort of be a fully fledged member of the team. So I, I started off doing a bit more clinical work with, with the thought of, you know, maintaining that reversibility if things didn't work out, but actually, you know, things did work out and, you know, I was getting busier and, the sort of stand, it might vary a little bit from company to company, but the standard offering uh, within AstraZeneca for anyone who's medically qualified is essentially you can do sort of, you know, 10% of your time to do clinical work is, is there a sort of standard. So I moved to that after about six months 
uh, and decided rather than doing a half day a week, doing a full day was probably going to be better uh, just for continuity. It's, all, it's always difficult to squeeze in half days. Yeah, I, th I think it's very important to maintain that. You know, I, I enjoy the clinical work. Uh, so I do a mixture on, on my fortnightly day of some musculoskeletal specific work and then a general inpatient list, uh, which is good for sort of the general uh, side of things. Um, I think it's also important from the company's point of view because you know part of my value is that sort of real world understanding of what works what doesn't work what what are the issues you're going to face in the ground and, and maintaining a foot in the clinical world is very helpful for that and then the final thing is I think it is very helpful for your credibility when you're interacting with other medically qualified people be that internally within the company or externally I think maintaining a bit of clinical practice uh, is, is helpful for that. So yeah, I certainly intend to keep doing that going forward and I think it's important. Greg, let me come on to you on that same theme. What is it that you take from your radiology experiences that you've had, that you're currently having into your work and what does your day-to-day -day job actually involve? Well, it involves lots of meetings to start with, many, many meetings. Um, I mean, the, the big difference with, you know, designing trials for uh, in academia and designing trials in, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a commercial environment is that, you know, in, in the academia, in, in, the, in the university, you have to do pretty much everything yourself. So you're a statistician, you are the research nurse, you are the, uh, the feasibility manager, you are the, the guy who executes the study and so on. In, uh, in the industry, you have to coordinate uh, multiple teams and um, you have to make sure we're all aligned that they, everybody understands their the role and what they need to do and what's the, what's the scope of the project and so on so that's why it's important that communication is uh, is good and that's why we have all these uh, these meetings but you know overall what i really enjoy about the job is that you know it's exactly this interaction with many other smart people with different backgrounds in, in business in statistics in uh, medical affairs and regulation um, and I, I do really enjoy that. And it was something that, you know, it, it, that's a big difference from the medical environment that, you know, when you're in the hospital, you pretty much interact with your own specialty, maybe a couple of other specialties, and that's it. And for me, you know, it's, um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's very stimulating meeting and discussing um, things with all these, you know, with all these other people and you know getting their ideas and obviously what i bring to the table as james said is that uh, you know have a very good understanding of the of the real world and what's happening with um with vascular patients because i've treated them i've spent lots of time with them and uh, obviously i know how the, how the hospital works and um, i think radiologists especially they bring a unique mixture of skills because we know a little, we need we know many things about many different systems so we're not really just specialized in one thing um we are very good at because of all the studying we've done we know we know neurology we know cardiology we know respiratory we know we know and and especially when it comes to interventional as well then we also have a little bit of practical experience as well and um, um and, and i think i think radiologists are uh, um, uniquely positioned to work in the industry because they can wear many different hats and they can contribute in many different discussions 
Um, so so yeah, and that's probably a message that for all the mm, other. That's interesting. Yeah. That. Yeah. We're a keystone to the clinical pathway for a lot of patients. And as you're right, we are probably one of the last specialties where we have this broad understanding of both interventions. Yeah, I mean, you know, they have always been they have always been calling us the doctors, doctors or whatever. And I know that's a very, you know, big title and I'm not sure if we really deserve it, but um, in a way it, it is true. In a way we have like we, we hold the keys for the diagnosis nowadays. I mean, nothing gets diagnosed without radiology. And even in treatment nowadays, I mean, with the advances in interventional radiology, minimal invasive procedures are becoming the norm, and we see more and more indications for interventional radiology. And I expect to see more interventional interest from the pharmaceutical industry going forward. So, Neil, can I ask you the same question about uh, what you take from your clinical responsibilities and your clinical work to your day-to-day job and what that involves? <clears throat> Some similar things to what Greg has said. Though in particular for me, within the company, I'm the subject matter expert because I'm the kind of the early imaging person who's, you know, done it. Uh, and, and also kind of from the therapy side as well, um, because it's a theranostic company. So all of that background is really important in helping guide the kind of strategy for the company. Previously at GSK, I was also the radiation expert, the uh, lead domain expert for radiation. So clinical trials if they involve radiation would come through me and give get my seal of approval if I think it was justified or not so from a radiology background that kind of was quite really important for the company to be able to have someone to rubber stamp things and and then studies would go on to the safety boards which would and and be passed on on the basis of the fact the radiation was okay but yeah otherwise as Greg has said it's kind of just the general knowledge of the field which helps input and the kind of day-to-day clinical understanding, which sometimes is slightly removed from people in industry who, who've not been doing clinical work for a while. They're kind of more science-driven. And, and, and also, if you, if you try to get understanding of, of a field, uh, if you just read papers, that gives you a very skewed perspective on what is actually reality and what's really practical and, um, and, and deployable within hospitals, et cetera. So, um, having that clinical grounding is really important and, and having being able to just kind of off the cuff say that would never work or that will, you know, that doesn't make sense is, is really important. Whereas, I mean, if, if, if a company doesn't have that, what they do is they go out for KOLs, uh, key opinion leaders, and try to get their opinions on, on, on subjects. But, but sometimes that's actually kind of slightly dangerous because KOLs sometimes have their own agendas. We used to have a joke about in GSK was uh, we don't want KOLs, we want WOLs, which are working opinion leaders, people who are on the ground actually doing the work because they really understand, they really understand what's, what's needed. So, um, so yeah, so having that clinical expertise, actually doing clinical work really helps kind of guide industry, I think, in, in the right direction. Uh, Jamie, come in. I just want to add uh, something that Neil said really, I think, struck a chord. I think it's worth emphasising to people who are, who are not as familiar with what the role involves. I think a lot of what we all do probably involves actually indicating where imaging is not appropriate rather than, you know, <laughs> we're, not, we're not just sort of there to say, oh, image this, image that. We are very much there to say, okay, what, what's sensible, what's really going to add value um, and what's not, you know, it's, it's kind of similar to what you do clinically, you know, you I was going to say, I mean, that's why I was laughing because you really, you know, as radiologists, I know which way I tend towards like, really, do we really need to do that? I mean, it's not made me particularly popular with some clinicians. Neil, come and join in. Exactly. And actually, I was slightly concerned that in the first few years at my time at JSK, I was actually saying no to most things rather than saying we need this imaging kind of modality incorporated. Um, 
So I was slightly worried that actually my, my role was to stop things rather than to start things. Again, from discussions with, with Jamie and some talks that he's given, that it has to be allied to the main goals of what is going on, what the programme is, is about. But if there is an opportunity to explore some novel imaging or aspects of imaging that may well help the drug discovery effort, I presume that's a worthwhile thing to do. Greg, can I ask you about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think we're, we're in the... Um... You know, we're in the search of ways to make our studies, our trials, smaller and more more effective. So, in certain parts of the development phase, you you have to go for uh, you know surrogate markers, and very often, you know, imaging markers can be very good at that. So, you know, I think that with the advances that we have in imaging, you know, we're going to see more and more of that, of having imaging biomarkers as um, you know efficacy endpoints in in the future. Um, and of course, that's why I expect to see more radiologists being involved in um, in, in this field, uh, because and, and it's actually an expanding industry of um, you know you can outsource part of these services to other companies who do exactly that. They are imaging labs and they do centralized reporting and uh, validation and, and and all these things. So um, so yeah, it's absolutely. I think it's going to be an area that we're going to see a lot of interest in the future and we're going to see more radiologists being involved in this. So you're all incredibly positive and motivated individuals, but life isn't a bed of roses, Greg. So I'm going to push you a little bit. Are there any aspects to the work that you find really challenging or that are quite hard or, you know, do do push you in ways that you yeah. you, you find uh, difficult and challenging? I Look, it's a, it's, it's a different... So you leave the hospital where you're very, you know, you're settled, you, you know what you're doing, you've been doing that for many, many years, and then suddenly you move to a completely different arena. So, you know, it, it's a steep learning curve. You have to be... Uh, able to adapt very quickly I, I think it's it's very important to be able to you know sometimes you just need to be able to listen very well to what other people have to say and read between the lines you know I, I think it takes a little bit of time to just get used to the to the commercial environment and obviously every company is different and uh, you know it depends on the culture of the company how uh, how they're going to make you feel and how this uh, period is going to um, um, how, how it's going to feel for you. I mean, I was, I was lucky because Bayer has a very good uh, onboarding process and a very good culture that helps you uh, get up to speed very quickly. So it's worth saying that that onboarding is well recognized for clinicians joining pharma, isn't it? Oh, it's yeah, something yeah, that they're absolutely. very good at. You, you spend the first couple of months just to onboarding in the onboarding. And I think the onboarding processes can make or break things. I think it's, uh, you know, as, as, as it's for the American presidents, you know, the first hundred days, these are very important. And uh, <laughs> Have you done a hundred days yet? I've done a hundred days now, yeah. yeah I've done <laughs> okay, and there's actually it. a great, I think there's a great book out there, it's called The First Hundred Days. And um, it's, I definitely recommend this. And not only for people who are thinking of uh, moving to the industry, but also for people who are thinking of changing roles or changing positions. It's a good book because it tells you exactly, you know, how to approach these the first hundred days. And I think the, the the bottom line is that, and the key message is that you need to try and uh, speak to as many people as you can, expand your network, not only horizontally but vertically. So not only just in your in the department that you're going to be working. Okay, it depends on the organization. So the bigger the organization, the the, the more difficult it is to meet many people. I mean, Bayer has a hundred thousand people 
So educating mother is hard to meet all of them. That must have been particularly tough during lockdown as well, trying to. It is, yeah, and, and, and I guess meetings. that was that, that's a great point actually, because you know, for me, it, it, it was one of the things that made you know made me a little bit uncomfortable thinking about that. I was like, okay, how I'm going to start in a new company without being able to go to the office and uh, mm. physically meet. I mean, I spent a year, you know talking to the team and negotiating the position and interviewing and whatever. And I saw them like a couple of months ago after, after a year and a half. So this, I think that's, that's, yeah, that's challenge, but I think that, you know, we're all getting used to this now. And I think, again, if you are, if you put a little bit of effort and if you try to make sure that you speak, you know, even virtually you speak to some people and, and now we can travel again. So I've spent a lot of time, mm traveling and going to meet my colleagues and say hi hello even if it's just for a just for a friendly hello and nothing else i think mm. it's very important to do that so neil let's ask you the same question which bits are hard to chew what's the gristle that you have to try and work your way through yeah i was just going to also make, just raise a comment there's a difference between big pharma versus smaller biotechs um they have a slightly different emphasis and culture um, and so you're talking about onboarding. I think with a biotech, it's much quicker than just two or three months. It's like and that's how you would categorize your current position. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mine's an SME or you know small to medium enterprise. Um, um, and biotech is much more dynamic, much faster compared to the bigger bigger pharma, where they're much more ponderous and slow and bureaucratic. So that's a kind of a, a big difference. And, and You're not on your own with that one, by the way, Neil. Jamie and Greg are chuckling yeah. as well. well so, I, I, you know. I'm sure they agree because they're in big yeah. pharma, aren't they? Also, the NHS and working in the hospital, everything's relatively constant and secure. You kind of know where you are and, and things won't really change for the next 10, 15, 20 years, hopefully. Um, whereas in pharma, it can change quite rapidly. They can suddenly cut a whole division or part of, of the company. For example, GSK... Um, stop doing oncology for a while um, it's now back but so you you don't have necessarily the same level of security as you might being a clinician where you know what you, you know you're going to be doing kind of pretty much every day that doesn't just tra translate into your own job security but also just um, in the way interactions work because pharma has a lot more rollover like you may have a discussion with someone one day and then come back to them you know a few months later and you'll find they've gone they've moved to another company or whatever and so sometimes having a continued kind of um, line of sight on something can be difficult you kind of have to keep re-involving stakeholders and re-kind of learning relationships etc. yeah that's very different isn't it to the <clears throat> clinical environment where yeah. you are often with people for many many years for good or bad yeah um, the, old, the, old, the old mindset was that you don't you get a consultant job and you stay there for life don't you mm. um, and, and that has changed less, less so now less so now yeah. but, but still you know relatively it's a constant environment compared to i think pharma um, where there's a lot more turnover people are moving around in in a smaller biotech which is what I would say I'm in. I think it's a smaller group of people, so it's a much that is a less of a problem because I think people pretty much get to know each other. I mean, the company I'm working for is about 150 to 180 people, so you know you you get to, you get to develop the relationships a bit better and quicker. Thanks for sharing that, Neil. Jamie, can I ask you what's it hard to cut? What blunts the knife? What makes it perhaps something you turn around and roll your eyes at without anyone noticing? Certainly, one of the, the challenges when you first start is and this sort of speaks to what, what Greg was saying was about, you know, communicating what you're doing to a different audience. So, you know, we're kind of used to going, you know, presenting our stuff uh, as academics, we're used to going and presenting our stuff at imaging 
conferences, for example, where everyone in the audience is bought into the concept of imaging being a good thing. You're now trying to sort of pitch your idea to an audience which may not accept that premise. You know, you have to really make the case for why are we doing imaging and not something else? Why do you want to spend this money on it? And I think, you know, I, I, I remember one of my early experiences going to one of the investment committees for, for a project I was working on. And, you know, maybe presenting to a panel of maybe 10 or 15 people, but I was pro probably felt more nervous doing that than I had done, you know, talking in a conference hall to, you know, hundreds of people. Um, so I, I think that's that's a challenge, but it's, it's I, I like, you know, that's one of the reasons I, I joined is, you know, I like the, the challenge of learning something new and, and getting out of my comfort zone. I might, so I, I, I do take Neil's point about, you know, certainly, you know, biotechs, potentially being, being less bureaucratic if you like, than big pharma. But I have to say, if you compare back to academia, you know, the, even, even a big pharma company is, is still pretty nimble. So, you know, if you think about what you'd have to do previously, you come up with an idea, you have to then somehow go through the, the painful process of getting funding for that, go through university bureaucracy, et cetera. Whereas certainly based on my experience with, with AstraZeneca is, you know, if you've got a good idea, you can get it kicked off pretty quickly. And um, particularly if the initial amounts of money needed are, are small. Um, so you can go from quite rapidly from having an idea through that proof of concept phase. And then, you know, if it's something you want to take further, you then seek the extra resource. So, yeah, I, I think that can be a frustration, but probably I would, you know, honestly, probably less so than I'd anticipated. Yeah, and, and just a final thing to say on the challenge comparing to clinical life is you do kind of lose that immediacy, that sort of immediate rush of reward. So, you know, clinician comes down, you, they need your help with the scan, you help them, they go away satisfied. What you're doing in pharma is potentially much more impactful. You know, you're creating new drugs that are going to go out to, you know, thousands, millions of people, but it's not, you don't get that sort of immediate adrenaline rush. And I think that some maybe takes a little bit of time to adjust to. It's almost like the extreme. People talk about clinical as that direct impact, and they talk about research as being pushed away from that direct impact. So I presume that's a similar phenomenon. It's actually, some of the things apply in, in academia, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I um, think that's a great point from Jamie. I think you, you know you have to be patient. You have to be. I mean, especially as an interventionalist, you know, you have this immediate satisfaction that someone comes in with a blocked artery, I unblock it, happy days, you know. We did it again, you know, everybody's happy in the room. In the projects that I'm working now, I mean, we're planning for 10 years, uh, 10 years ahead. And, 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 you know, we all know how, you know, drug development works. And we know that very often the chances are against us, uh, even with the best projects, you know, you have like one in 10, one in 20 sometimes to the project to work. So you, I guess that's one of the, one of the things you have to be very patient. You have to be able to see the bigger picture. And of course, you have to be able to understand that sometimes you might be working in a project for months and months and months, and then suddenly the project mm -hmm. just said, the company says, sorry, that's a no-go, we're going to move on. It seems um, like it's a very different yeah. connection that you have with your, the, your work and what you do day in, day out, but equally rewarding in the bigger picture. Yeah, because you have to remember the bigger picture. You have to remember that, you know, you're doing something, there's a usually there's a big need and that's why we're doing this and if it works then you can help many many people greg 
you and, and Neil and Jamie have told us all about the kind of things you get up to and the rewards that you get from them. Obviously, we haven't been able to go into the specific project details, completely understandable. But how would you encourage radiologists? Because I'm starting to really see the value that radiologists can have in, in their knowledge and their experience that they bring to pharma. How would you encourage radiologists wanting to explore this different career paths um, and what options might be open to them? Yeah, I, I think to start with, I think this kind of podcasts are very important. I think they, because in a way, you know, for many years, I think this working for the industry thing was a little bit of a taboo, um, like many other things, like starting doing a startup or working, doing a business project. For many years in the NHS, that was a taboo. Fortunately, these things have changed now and we have seen, you know, these NHS clinical entrepreneurship programs uh, that Professor Young is running. And see, all these are great things because, you know, they allow uh, doctors who have an interest and an inclination towards business to participate in these programs, speak to other people who have done this or think of doing this. And, you know, it's, it's important to not fit, feel alone in this process. Um, so I think the first thing is to just speak to other people who have done this. Uh, I mean, there are already three people in this panel who have a, and probably have the least experience in this, uh, but I'm sure there are other radiologists who are doing similar things. Um, that's the first thing. And the second thing is that I think you, at some point you have to take a risk and, you know, just go for it. And, you know, at the end of the day, you can try it for a year or two. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You can, uh, you can go back to clinical medicine. It's not, it's not going to go anywhere. I mean, okay. You, you have to understand that. Okay. You might lose some skills. You might have to go back into like a refresher's course or something like that to get some of that training, depending on how long you've been away. But to be honest with you, most of the people that I've met who joined the, the industry and not only in radiology, but most of the physicians that I've met who have gone to the industry, they haven't looked back. Uh, um, and obviously, I'm not saying that every doctor should become should do that because that's not I don't think that's for everybody. But it's certainly for for some people, especially for people who are interested in research, who are interested in learning more about business and innovation. I think that's something that's very very rewarding experience. I think the NHS has made massive steps towards bridging that gap, and for yeah. the innovation and leadership and entrepreneurship events are have been really important uh, to facilitate that knowledge and that experience. And we're still at early stages, I think, just and, and, on the on the shop yeah. floor. And there are also, you know, there are many smaller startups that, you know, like really small startups that are using imaging these days and are, uh, you know, trying to find innovative ways to address certain problems. And they're always looking for, uh, you know, imaging physicians to, to help them with that. So, for example, before I joined Bayer, I was working pro bono for a, for a startup called uh, Oxford Heartbeat, developing um, uh, planning software for endovascular aortic procedures. So that, that was a good opportunity for me to, you know, I wasn't spending too much time. I was just spending uh, like maybe two, three, four hours a week or something like that, maybe half a day a week. But that was a good opportunity for me to actually experience that and see what it is like to work in a you know, semi-commercial environment. Yeah, so Neil, can I ask you the same question as to Greg, was that how you'd encourage radiologists wanting to, to explore this uh, different career path and the options that they have? Well, I, I think as Greg said, I think first thing is to talk to people who are already doing it. And, and it's not just us either. The, I know several others out there who could also kind of involved in industry. Um, and I think that's a good way to get a good understanding um, of what, what it entails. Um, you could, in terms of career paths in industry, I think there are two kind of main ones. One, one would be um, coming in as a kind of a, an expert uh, in, in your field, and, and then you, you're providing a specific service to, to industry. Or, or you could go in as a more generic medic 
um, and an industry often in certain companies have a kind of internships and schemes which allow you to come in and explore the kind of the 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 workplace or the kind of environment and, and on a part-time basis on it whilst you're still that's that's slightly different because it's not so yes coming in as an expert allows you to negotiate the kind of part-time aspect um i think um in I'll which you might have sort of nda discussions non-disclosure agreement discussions about you know a certain field or your certain expertise yeah so coming in as an expert you could either be a consultant where you kind of have ndas and you kind of are only consulting on specific aspects of the business or you could be a part you could be an employee or part-time employee and and then you could actually you, you know that nda whole aspect doesn't is not important because it's part of your job description but there's the other end where you get medics coming in at kind of a earlier stage in their careers when they're not kind of subject matter experts but they come in and are could just work up the food chain in in industry like we would as a junior doctor etc so they're kind of two slightly different paths and and the ones who are coming in earlier don't actually necessarily have to start keeping the imaging they you know they can expand into other areas would it be fair to say there's a third path which is if your research goes in certain places where it's making these big developments where you may be even more senior in your career and your expertise is then in demand from that perspective yeah I, i'll kind of tie that in with kind of being a kind of a, okay. a subject matter expert i mean yeah, the, yeah. you could you'd come in at a slightly higher level within industry but yeah. essentially coming in because of your expertise in that area yeah thanks neil uh, jamie asking you the same question encouraging radiologists to get involved from your experiences and what we've heard today and and again are there any other options that you could add as to how you can gain experience and gain an understanding of what looks to be a really varied and rewarding career yeah, I mean, I think um, Neil and Greg have, have summed up fairly well. I think typically people who are going to be interested in this are probably going to have some sort of academic background, but it's not an absolute necessity mm. just to, to have that experience of, you know, what, what yes. research involves. Because we hadn't touched on that, actually, had we? I mean, you have all come from academic backgrounds and there is a sort of sort of hint that that might be slightly exclusive. I think, it, I mean, Neil, you can disagree with me, but I think it's also true of the more generic physicians who come across to industry, I think often they have a PhD or, or similar. So it tends to be people who have been research focused in their previous clinical life have come across. Do you agree, Neil? Up to point. There are a number of people like number of people I know who came in just straight as kind of jobbing clinicians and, and then wanted to change. Um, I suppose their focus is slightly different and they can go into different parts of the industry, such as kind of, you know, commercial side etc yeah i'm just i'm just struggling slightly to hold back when you said generic physicians <laughs> in terms of you know just those ones you know they're all pretty generic <laughs> i didn't mean it to come across as derogatory we always stumble across this you know whether you say standard or normal consultants without without being derogatory etc yeah um, let's put it down to just terminology but I, yeah. I i did enjoy that the other thing i was going to add about you know encouraging people in i think you know the, there's certain attributes you know which i think if people see in themselves i would encourage them to consider industry particularly strongly and that would be if you're really a sort of a pragmatist you want to sort of get things done you're interested in things that will work in the real world then i think you know that that for me leans you towards industry and you you may get a bit frustrated with normal academic life in, in that setting and the other thing and this goes back to what Neil said I think is is having some flexibility so you may for example enter a company with an idea of progressing in one stream so progressing as a subject matter expert but then actually maybe there's not that much imaging going on and you're required to fulfill a more generic uh 
medical role. And, and you know, as we've spoken about before, radiologists are quite well placed to do that because we are generalists. I think if, if you have that flexibility, then there's a lot of opportunity. And, and that's not just within clinical development. The boundaries within companies are porous. You can go into things like medical affairs. So medical affairs is how you interact with the external medical community to build the evidence for the various drugs that you're developing, regulatory affairs, we are dealing with regulators and that type of thing. So there's a whole lot of opportunity in there. And if you're flexible, I think that, you know, you're, you're well-placed to take advantage of that. Oh, thanks, Jamie. This has been a really interesting, eye-opening discussion. And I hope people are taking something away from this and some seeds are being sown and people are thinking about how they can combine, I guess, something like a portfolio career or a complete career change. Well, thanks everyone for your contributions on this. As we come to the end, I'm genuinely intrigued to ask you my favourite closing question, not least because you've had have such uh, different trajectories laid out in front of you. Um, and perhaps it's not quite as formulaic as it might have been in radiology or clinical medicine, and perhaps that's an important part of the story. So, Greg, where do you think you will be in 10 years' time? That's like uh, the favourite interview question, isn't it? Yes, um, you're on the spot. <laughs> look, I mean, to, to be honest, I would like to stay in the clinical development side and clinical and drug discovery. Um, I, I think it's a very, you know, fulfilling role. And I hope that in 10 years from now, uh, I'm, I'm going to be running a phase three or a phase four trial uh, on our own assets, making sure that it works well for our patients and um you know, moving forward, you know, at some point I would like probably to do an MBA. Uh, that's the next, I think that's the next uh, educational goal for me. Uh, yeah, it never stops. It just keeps going. Never, never it? stops. Yeah. <laughs> until, until we get that. Yeah. I, th I think you keep moving is, is important. Yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, keep challenging yourself as uh, Jamie was saying, staying in your comfort zone is good and easy, but you know, it's a little bit of a dead place. Nothing grows there. You have to, you have to step outside and you know take calculated risks make mistakes learn from them and you know move on i think that that's what makes it so much fun for me because you know you don't get you don't get bored now oh, thanks greg okay so neil can i ask you then what you think about 10 years time for you with your career trajectory because you've already had an interesting change that you may not have seen um when you started working for gsk is it possible to even say where you might be in 10 years time i think that's going to be very difficult i think a lot of factors have to be taken into account but um running my own pharmaceutical company yeah with, think big <laughs> yeah well why not and uh, jamie this is interesting because you've already answered this question last time people can go back and have a listen and just see how things change and so for you do you think it's possible to predict where you might be in, in 10 years time now you're in this new environment well i think the difference between this answer and my previous one goes to show that 10 year plans yeah. are uh, a bit of a fool's errand i might set my sight slightly lower than, than neil's and and say that you know i at the moment i'm really enjoying my role so i'd hopefully still be within a, the pharmaceutical world hopefully having you know built my imaging group up a bit what i really like to do is have a, a real seamless integration with academic and and sort of small companies that, that do image analysis and things like that to make sure we're really leveraging that capability and benefiting not just the job development program but actually that the patients are taking part in it so yeah i, I think you know a, a bigger group and and seamless working with academia would be my sort of big tenure aims so maybe just head of the europe division as opposed to the whole company like neil <laughs> yeah I'll, yeah I'll, I'll take that yeah 
yeah. Um, uh, Neil, the, the thoughts just come to me is like you've moved on from GSK. Presumably, they're now hiring for the position, or have they? I guess one of the things that you said is that things can change. Uh, do you know? Do you know? Maybe that position doesn't exist anymore. Uh, that that specific position does not exist, but they uh, they've just hired a lot of new people to kind of supplement the rest of the team. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the way, as you said, it goes. Yeah, I, I was just going to add, uh, as Neil said, there may not be an opportunity there at the moment, but one of the things we've spoken about is that turnover in the pharmaceutical world is is a lot higher than in academic and certainly than the NHS world. So actually, there are new positions coming up all the time. You know, places like LinkedIn, et cetera, are good places to go. You know, you can, you know, and I, I, I know speaking to people uh, who, who you know her, who are in that world, you might be looking for it or a good place to start. The, the, keep the channels the, of communication open. Exactly. Positions are coming up all the time. So, so keep your eyes open. So, yeah. Uh, just to add to that, I'd say keep um, an eye on drug company websites because that's where they post their jobs. And definitely LinkedIn. Have a good LinkedIn profile because actually often you don't necessarily go to people they come to you and ask you because they, they've done a search and found your skill set. That's really helpful information. Thanks ever so much. So that brings us to the end of this sortie, folks, but not the end of the tour, as we'll be continuing throughout the summer with more episodes, for example, on international and interdisciplinary academic radiology. It's been an enormous pleasure to talk with you, Neil, uh, Jamie again, of course, and Greg, and I'm really grateful for you finding the time to come on the Crash podcast, and I am very much in awe of just how you're able to manage all these different aspects of your life and your careers. Well, uh, Tom, thank you very much for, for the invitation. I really enjoyed the talk uh, and chatting to you. And it was really nice to see Neil again. And it was very nice meeting Jamie. Hopefully, I'll, I'll get to see you again, guys, at some point, maybe in a conference or, or somewhere else. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. Uh, really enjoyed the discussion. Good to catch up with Neil again. And, and Greg, yeah, good to hear about you. And I, th I think it sounds like the you know, you're just in the, the start of your journey. And I think, I think you'll really enjoy it. And yeah, hopefully this has been helpful to... To anyone who's interested, and I encourage them to to reach out to, to any of the the panelists here today if they want to learn more. Yeah, likewise. I think I, you know. Thank you for the, the the fun discussion. Also, if anyone's interested in hearing more, I mean, there's so much more to discuss about industry and and future careers, etc. More than welcome for people to reach out to us. So that's the air crew off to the mess to celebrate their safe landing. And now to the ground staff behind the scenes that make it all happen. A huge thanks, as always, to Charlotte McKeown and the Royal College of Radiologists events team and to the college itself for continuing to support the podcast. And of course, a big shout out to Sue Mercer for her invaluable sound editing that makes us all sound so slick. As usual, show notes will be available at the RCL website, and if you have any questions about what we have discussed today or any other crash-related matters, then you can email them to conf at rcr.ac.uk, that's c-o-n-f at rcr.ac.uk, or you can reach out to me on Twitter at Tom Termazai. I'd love to hear about your ideas and your views, plus if you can think of any guests that you'd like to hear from and any questions that you'd like to ask, crash test or otherwise, please do get in touch. And our usual reminder goes out about Radiant. You can find them at www.radiantuk.com, noting that there's a place for everyone in their setup, no matter your career, your position, your location. So find out how you can get yourself and your training scheme involved in their ever-expanding repertoire. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit us with some likes and reviews, and don't forget to share and subscribe. I've been your wingman, Tom Termazai. Until next time, stay safe.